Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. John and I are good friends from high school. Uh, we graduated from Piner High in 1985. And uh, we worked together at Pizza World. <laughs> and uh, John was a pizza maker. So was Brian and Pat. I don't know, whatever happened to Pat, that's a whole other discussion. And then uh, I was the dishwasher. So <laughs> once in a while, I got to make pies, which was cool. And uh, after high school, you went to junior college with me. We didn't actually hang out that much, but we were there together. And then you got your AS in criminal justice and went to be a peace officer for Belmont Police Department, correct? Yeah, yeah. you, you kind of skipped a step, though. Actually, I, I got my AS. Yeah. No, yeah, my AS um, in, like, industrial technology, welding and machine shop. That's and right. And you did that for a couple of years. I, I did. I went and did that for, for about seven yeah. years. And yeah. uh, it w- wasn't until about seven years later that I decided to to change course and, and go into a completely different line of work. And that's something I'd never even really thought about before, but you know, um, yeah, it's just a career change. Yeah. A pretty big one. And, and, uh, we hadn't talked, I mean, we didn't haven't talked for many years actually until we had hung out at Gina's and I've always had a lot of respect for you. And as I think I shared with you over dinner, the purpose of my podcast is to bring some pretty topical and sometimes controversial topics that I think are complex. And I don't think they should be discussed with Venom on Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> things like that. So I just had a, a, a podcast released this week about critical race theory. I had one on safe spaces. I think I talked to you about earlier. Next week, I'm talking about ideology and how it's dividing us. And Defund the, the Police is one of those topics. And one of those topics where I myself am unbelievably ignorant, specific to the the training and the plight and the experience of police officers. And because you have such a storied career, and I'm gonna, I don't want to embarrass you here, but I have your, your profile report here. And you started out in 1996 at Belmont, went to Santa Rosa Police Department in, what, two years later? Yeah, about two and a half. It was in 94 I started in Belmont and then, yeah. and then uh, came, came to Santa Rosa, which has been my home. Yeah, uh, in at the end of '96, and retired in 2020. 20, and you you were promoted to sergeant in 1996. No, uh, 2004. 2004. Oh, sorry, yeah, 2004, and then lieutenant in 2014. Correct. Okay, and so the I, I I highlighted some of these things here within your training and your certifications because part of this discussion in the zeitgeist is that police officers don't have the proper training. They don't have the proper funding. They need more. They need more. And these are lay people usually (laughs) blathering on. And so I just wanted to kind of read some of the things that I've highlighted here. Over the years, you've had significant training in officer safety field tactics, driver training. What is SNK, by the way, as far as an acronym? You have SNK knowledge mods, SNK sexual harassment, SNK psychological officer. I don't know what that means, but um, those those are all those are all perishable skills. Got it. 
And crime investigation, these are all training programs, cognitive interviewing and statistical analysis, domestic violence updates, war and investigations, emotional survival, CRI intervention, legislative updates, narcotic updates, active shooter patrol, computer digital evidence recovery, forensics data acquisition, gang awareness, supervisory courses, internal affairs, electronic surveillance, firearms, racial profiling, Sherman Block SLI, communication, keeping your edge, officer-involved shootings, ethics and law enforcement, domestic violence, firearms, management courses. And, you know, there's there's tons and tons of these, buddy. So I kind of wanted to, and maybe that's a good place to start with some of the narrative out there. What's the good part about the training you went through, not only as a peace officer early on, but then as a leader and commander uh, of uh, of the Santa Rosa the Police Department? What does that look like? What is that? What is it? It's so we have we have two types of training. We have uh, mandated training, which is mandated by by post, which is the um, the commission, the state commission that oversees policing in California sets training standards. And uh, most of that stuff is perishable skills. Not all of it, but a lot of it is. We have to keep up on things that uh, you have to do repeatedly, arrest and control, that sort of thing. And that, and that's what everybody goes through. But then there's specialized training, depending on what uh, what your job duty is. You know, if you get assigned to investigations, uh, detective team, if you're doing uh, traffic uh, enforcement, if that's your specialty, there's, there's different collision investigation courses. Um, it's a lot of training, I mean, it's thousands of hours of training over a career. Um, I don't think it's enough. I think we need more training. I think police officers need more training, um, in, a, a, along with the, the current training they get, they're getting, that they have to know, they have to be able to, to use the basic tools. You have to be able to arrest and control people without getting hurt, without hurting yourself, without hurting others. Uh, you got to know the law. You got to know the constitution. You have to keep pounding that over and over again because these police officers out on the street are making critical decisions in a matter of seconds or fractions of a second yeah and 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 that can have a real difference on the outcome of whatever the incident is um but i think you know over the last few years i think it's brought to light some of the things we really need to train in you know i think we talked about this the other day about implicit bias which everybody in the santa rosa police department has gone through that training um okay. the county puts on a, a 36 hour mental health uh, dealing with with people who are emotionally disturbed and have mental health issues um we try to get all of our i think i, I looked a couple of years ago i think 75 percent of our officers had had that um okay. probably less now with covid because it's it's a class you have to go to you know but um Police officers in our community are asked to deal with so many different things than what you think. You know, the average, if you talk to a, a six-year-old kid and ask what a police officer does, you know, they're, they're, they would have this minuscule little picture. You know, they they stop people and give them tickets or they take bad guys to jail. And it's just, <laughs> we know it's, it's so much more than that. I mean, we are the 24-7 solution to literally every single problem in our community. Now, how do you train somebody to handle all of that? And handle it perfectly because that's the expectation, right? Right. Correct. And <clears throat> you mentioned something when we were preparing for this and I, I, I asked you to kind of embark or actually em- embellish this. You mentioned that your dispatch, and I don't remember what year it was, it was 2019, had 225,000 
calls through, through dispatch, something to that extent. And then can you talk about that as far as, because that, the width and breadth of that was staggering to me. How many calls you guys get through dispatch and how many men are then marshaled to go solve those problems? And then how many, how few right. incidents were actually there? Right. And, and of course, I'm, I'm only speaking for the Santa Rosa Police Department. Correct. That's who I work for. That's yeah. I was a, a manager in that department as a lieutenant. And, and these numbers were important to us. We, you know, yeah. we need to know what it is our staff is doing. How do we, uh, how do we budget for that? How many people do we need? Are our, our, our response times up to snuff? And, and when you look at a community of, I mean, we have a census coming out here pretty soon, but I, I think yeah. I could probably easily estimate we're probably a city of between 175 and 200,000 at this point. Wow, it's grown a lot. Which is a, yeah, it's a pretty good sized city, um, pretty decent size, and and we're busy, you know. But just to kind of shed some light on the numbers, um, I'm looking online because we did we did post them online for 2019. Uh, our dispatch center received 255,224 calls. So those are actual phone calls that came into our dispatch center, and out of those 255,224 calls. Uh, we created or dispatch created 137,690 calls for service. And just, we, we call it calls for service, which means that it's a, it's a call that somebody's uh, going to get dispatched to. Um, so I, I, you know, 95% of those probably are actual calls where a police officer goes to a scene, probably meets with somebody. Um, you know, we're not going to, I don't want to dive into the numbers too deep because you can, you can dissect that number a million different ways, but it's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's a lot, you know, you divide that up by the number of days. That's a lot of calls we're, we're going to in a, in a day. And out of those 137,690 calls, 235 times did our officers have to use force to resolve the situation. So somebody was either resisting arrest or wasn't going along with the program or they were assaulting us, that sort of thing. And, and we have those numbers. I keep saying we, like I still work there. I'm still getting <laughs> used to of, this retirement thing. That's, good. that's true. It's, well, it's pretty fresh. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, and I have, you know, I have a, a person, it's a personal connection. I mean, I worked there sure. for a long time and it's, it's very near and dear to my heart and, and who I am um, in my community. And so if, if I say we just know I'm, I'm talking Understood. about, I think the pronoun is, is appreciated by everybody. <laughs> you earn that pronoun. <clears throat> it's kind of hard to um, extract from your vocabulary. So you break down those 235 uh, calls. This is pretty consistent over the years too. 2019 is not some anomaly. I mean, I've looked at the numbers going back. There are years that spike, there are years that are flat, but 2019 is just it's just what's posted, um, yeah. but it's, it's probably pretty average. But, you know, four of those 235, uh, somebody was assaulting another person. 26, uh, assaulting an officer. Six, harming oneself. Two, damaging property. 21, in, in progress uh, crime or incident. And 163, resisting arrest or detention. And 13, threatening assault. Um, so those are kind of the how we get into those situations. Uh, breakdown, but you look at the the two thirty five compared to the one thirty seven six ninety. That's point one seven percent. That's pretty slim when you look at it. You know what I mean? Point one seven percent of all of the calls, and we contact people on almost every call, multiple people. So when you look at when you take that number, even though it's just for us that one year, it, it doesn't paint a very uh, 
doesn't paint a very convincing picture that the police are just out assaulting people all day long, which is kind of what, you know, some people like to paint it as. And, and it's just not true. It's just right. not true. Do things happen? Absolutely. I wish that that, that number was zero. Uh, I mean, ideally, I would love to go to 137,000 calls for service and never have to put our hands on anybody and still take care of the problem. But unfortunately, that's just not the reality. No. And part of our discussion, again, which brief about this, because we wanted to, I wanted to keep as much on camera as we possibly could. But the idea there, and to your point earlier around mental health, you mentioned that you would love to have more budget to align your men and women on the force with a mental health advocate or a social worker or a psychologist or whatever that situation would, would actually warrant. What? And then you also did mention that historically those budgets have been cut and or not funded to the point where they could be helpful for you to have these different aspects. And I think that on the positive side of the defund the police phrase, which I hate on just so many fronts, as an ad guy, I need to at least stop there. As an ad guy, the phrase bothers me so much because it's asking people to adopt a completely different understanding of the word defund. And then they get mad <laughs> when you say, well, do you mean defund? Like, and then some of them obviously do, and we'll get into that in a bit. But as it relates to defund, a lot of the proponents and advocates for police officers will say, it's not about defunding, it's about additional funding. And so what did your funding specific to Santa Rosa PD look like historically as it relates to mental health and this kind of understanding that I think everyone can agree on is that we need Peace officers should not be going to mental health calls and or there's a lot of different things I think that they could that could be handled without the police department if we had additional budget. What does that look like? What does that look like historically? Yeah. So first of all, I'm, I'm a big advocate for that. Um, in fact, we, many of us have been big advocates for that for a very long time. So going way back, the county, um, the, so, so we're a city. Okay, we're, we're an incorporated municipality, uh, just like every other city, incorporated city in California. Okay, cities don't provide mental health services. That falls on the back of the county. The county gets funding from the state and from the federal government to do that. We don't have a human services department in the city. So we rely on the county to provide those services. And it's, it's been spotty over, over time here in Sonoma County. Uh, at one time, we had a, a mobile support team, which was a, a group of six or eight. I don't remember the numbers. Um, but just think about six or eight people for a county of 500,000 people, right? That's not that many. But um, Hold on. They, they would. Six, eight people total? On the mobile support. So those are folks that, you know, eight or tw eight to 12 hours a day would be available to come out okay. and deal with a, a crisis in the field that we were dealing with. We would call them and they would okay. come and either go with us or show up after we already got there. And and that worked pretty well. I, I'm sure that that resolved um, a lot of issues. You know, they, they have access to their computer system where they can actually look the person up and see what, what, what the issue is. Yeah. Um, but that, that program just kept getting cut, you know, and, and it, it's still minimal for what we need. You know, you, the, the police department is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? We're, we're going to be here no matter what. We are the cheap solution. And people who are in charge of budgeting for things like a mental health response team or a mobile support team, 
Um, I don't know if they just don't feel that it's, I'm sure they don't feel that it's not necessary. It's, it's just, it's extra. It's on top of what they're already doing. Um, so it tends to kind of get cut first. And we would like to see that get a lot more funding. You know, So out of those eight people that you had historically, when they cut it, what does that look like? You have five now? Yeah, less, less people working less hours um, and, and covering less uh, geographical area. You know, we're, we're, we're a big county and granted, most of the people are in central Sonoma County and in the city, but, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to calls that deal. I mean, probably like 90% of the calls that we go to involve some sort of either mental health or substance abuse. doesn't mean that it's the root of whatever's going on or that it's, but it's associated somehow. And that's why we're, that's why we're there because people are having issues. And so what is, what, if that's the majority of the calls you guys are going on, and this is a big part of the discussion now collectively, and I've read a lot of, again, we're not talking nationwide stuff, but a lot of the nationwide stuff specific to like NYPD, Minneapolis, Seattle, Portland, a lot of the things that were in the news lately, Ferguson, they all say the same thing is that there's, that we need preventative measures for crime. And when you don't have the preventative measures around you know, poverty, inequality, homelessness, addiction, all of those pieces, those people are on the street. And because they don't have any budgets with not only Sonoma County, but other counties are saying the same thing, is that then the police department itself is the cheap solution? Is that what it is? Is that there's no other, there's no one else to, to go and take care of these people? To yeah, to arbiter domestic who gonna, violence. Who are you going to call? Right. You're walking down the street and you see somebody having a mental health crisis. Right. Yelling and screaming, throwing rocks at passing cars, whatever it is. Who, who are you going to call? Do you, pick, do you pick up the phone and, and call the mental health department? No, you call 911 or you call you know the police department. And then we go out and see what the problem is. Get the person to stop throwing rocks at cars or whatever it is that, that, they're, <laughs> that they're doing. Right. There's there's no other resource in our back pocket where we can go. Well, you know, this person's probably having a mental health crisis. So let's let's call over to this department and they'll send a couple social workers out there to deal with it. That just doesn't that doesn't exist here. It doesn't exist in, in probably 99% of America. And ideally, you know, it would be, I would like to see some sort of a joint response. Yeah, we'll go and make sure nobody's going to get hurt. But once we've settled the thing down, then we bring in somebody who's actually going to help resolve this person's issues, whatever. I mean, we want, we want to help people. That's what, that's what we all signed up for. Right. And then to take that to the next step, if you guys get called, do you guys get, I'm assuming you get called for people trying to harm themselves. I don't know who would call you, but absolutely, you well, guys are dealing with people that are harming themselves. And when you get there, what does that look like? It's just you. It's just just the police. There's no one there on the mental health side. Do you then? Is that where you, if you had additional budget, would call a psychologist, or what? What does that look like? Potentially, it depends. It depends on. Uh, it's there's so many different types of calls. I mean, do. Do we go to people who are threatening to shoot themselves and are barricaded in a room with a with a handgun held to their head? Yeah, we go to that. But we also go to somebody who just wants to talk to somebody. We go to right. where they've taken some pills. Um, and we get most of those people, our, our officers get most of those people to the help that they need eventually. But when it doesn't rise to that level, when it doesn't rise to the level of someone actually going to hurt themselves or hurt somebody else, those are the ones where, where the... The, the solution is missing. 
Okay. Because in California, police officers can put people on a mental health hold, basically. It's called a 5150. Everybody's heard of it, right? But you have to be either a danger to yourself or danger to others or gravely disabled. A lot of the mental health calls that we go to, those factors don't exist. It's just below that threshold. And then we're stuck with, well, what are we going to, what are we going to do with this person? What kind of help can we, can we give them? And yet, can you take them voluntarily to the crisis stabilization unit? Yeah, you can. Problem is that they never have room. They've got eight beds for the entire county. And so when you bring somebody there voluntarily, there's no obligation for them to even see this person or talk to this person. They just say, come back tomorrow, come back during business hours. That doesn't know. That's, that's not help. It's not help. So out of the, broken. Correct. So out of the, when you talk about the county, you mentioned Santa Rosa has about 180, 200,000 people. How, how big is the county <clears throat> that it has those eight beds? Half a million. Half a million people. <laughs> Fuck. Okay, so you have a half a million people with eight beds. You were eight crisis like, beds. Yes, eight crisis beds. You weren't you as the lieutenant, the liaison with the mental health crisis stabilization unit. Yes. Okay, and in your duty for that, what what encompassed your duty that way? What what were you responsible for? What were you attempting to do to make it better? Or specifically, who were you working with in that unit? Was it a political head? Was it state government? Was it city? What? What? It's what county. It's, it, it's county, and it's um, uh, uh, the director of the uh, crisis stabilization unit. And what my job was is to be a liaison for uh, our department, so that we could have effective communication back and forth. I, I didn't have any influence on increasing their budget or anything yeah. like that. Um, we were on the same page. Well, we both understood that the system is broken and and both of us were basically powerless to to resolve that. We don't control the funding. We don't control, uh, you know, building new capital infrastructure to deal with uh, people in mental health crisis. And the mental health system, uh, I'm not even going to pretend to be any sort of an expert on it, but it's incredibly complex. I mean, incredibly complex. You're all the way up to dealing with people's insurance and mm-hmm. all those things influence what happens to a person because if somebody's got to pay for it, right? And, yeah. and and people with insurance get treated differently than people that don't have insurance. And uh, they go to different facilities and that sort of thing. But there's just a true lack of available resources for people who are in mental health crisis and need to be in a facility for some period of time until they can get treated, until their their medications can get straightened out, that sort of thing. And there's just, there's no room, no room at the end, I guess is the way. Yeah. To so in, in my role as the liaison, um, I would have talks with my folks. I would coordinate training to have uh, their folks come in and give us updates on just little reminders on, on dealing with people in mental health crisis and kind of paint the pictures for our frustrated officers who, who often um, put people on hold for their mental health issue and then take them to the facility where we're supposed to take them. And there's, like I said, no room at the end. So here's the other complicated part. Where do they go next? They go to the emergency department at the hospital. Okay, is that where we want to be bringing people in mental health crisis? Because they're dealing with people who are having medical issues. They don't have room, but they do take them. They take them. They do have psychiatric staff, but I guarantee, I'm telling you, they don't don't get the treatment that they would get at a proper crisis unit run by mental health professionals. They're getting placed in a room and 
maybe in a few hours, somebody might come by and make sure they're okay. It's, wow. it's, it's completely broken. And, and I'm sure Sonoma County is no different than any other county in uh, California. The, the system is completely broken. Just ask any mental health professional. They will tell you the exact same thing. And so you mentioned budget. These are out of your control. The liaison, the actual department itself. The, the, uh, You're talking about the crisis stabilization yeah, unit? Yeah, the crisis stabilization unit. They need budget. You guys, the person there said they need additional budget. You agreed as the lieutenant in charge of the force, they need additional budget. Where is that budget approved? Or That's where is that? County. It's at the county, county level, county board of supervisors. Okay. And so considering how important this discussion is, and this is the one tenet of every discussion I've watched. I sat on numerous, I guess you'd call them like debate platforms where they would have, like Vice News did a really cool thing. It had seven officers from Detroit, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, New York City, and then some other areas, Cleveland, Baltimore. And they all said the same thing, is that everyone's talking about defund the police when not only does that phrase drive them crazy, it's that we need more money. And they all say the same thing. And that's weird. You know, it's, it's very strange when you can have someone represented from all different parts of the country. It's hard to get consensus on anything. But the one consensus that all of these police officers say is that the mental health issues are way underfunded. Not like 10% underfunded, but ridiculously underfunded. And so most of their time is dealing with the same people. And that's another thing they talk about is you're dealing with the same folks. You're going back to these same homes. You're going back to these same perpetrators, if you will, right? You know them. (laughs) The frustrating part, Joey, is we we, we go there. We know because we've been there before. And every time we go, go back, we still don't have any solution. Because there's nothing in our back pocket, right? I want to drag somebody. I want to. I want to call somebody that that call that I've gone to, um, you know, a number of times where this person is just depressed and their their living conditions are are awful, but they don't rise to the level of actually removing them from the home. Who can I call? Because it's right. it's it's not in our tool bag. I mean, we can deal with the crisis part of it and get it stabilized and get it, the person calmed down because we have a lot of training in that. We've been training de-escalation for. Long before de-escalation was a word, you know what I mean? I mean, we deal, we de-escalate all the time, um, especially with people in mental health crisis. But once we get to that spot, we we got nothing for them. And that's the most frustrating thing in the world. I, I've got 180 officers who signed up to do this work to help people, and you can't help them. So it's no different. It's a totally different topic. It's no different than the homeless crisis that we're having, right? We, right. we get sent all these calls of people behaving badly. And, you know, the, the advocates for the homeless call it harassment, but we're dealing with behavior issues and we've got nothing for them. It's, it's totally frustrating. I'm a, I haven't seen the tent cities. As you know, I live in San Francisco and, and there are numerous tent cities. (laughs) (laughs) There are numerous tent cities here and I see peace officers all the time where they have to clean them up. So when I drive my kids to school, sometimes you'll see the vans and the, you know, they're actually removing the tent because they have to clean it, right? It's a, it's a mess. But that's another piece to the, the issue is that the police officers are the ones dispatched to take care of those folks as well. And so when you're talking about 
the de-escalation training, that is a theme that I've read about, and I actually put it in my notes to you, is that is accusation across the board that there's not enough de-escalation training. And I've witnessed in some of the platforms that I've sat on, listened to, and I've read articles, is that they said that de-escalation training needs to be enhanced because the peace officers themselves do not have the proper training to do that. So can you talk a little bit about de-escalation training in your history? Is it more today than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago when you started? What does it look like and how much, how intense is it? So it has, so it has a name now. Okay. Okay. Um, we didn't, we didn't use that phrase de-escalation over my career. It just wasn't a word. It wasn't a a word. We used other words to describe it, you know, and, um, but we've, we've always trained at least here in California to meet the training standards in California. My entire career, we have talked about starting everything at the lowest possible level when you can, right? Because sometimes the situation doesn't dictate, um, doesn't dictate coming in at the lowest level, right? You, you go to call a man with a gun. You're not going to start by, you know, just walking in and saying, hello, my name is, could you please <laughs> drop the gun? Right. I mean, it's, right. you're, right. you're going to take a different approach. Same thing. If two people are fighting, wrestling around on the ground, beating each other up, right. You're not going to, you're not going to start at that lowest level. You're going to start somewhere that's going to help, but you can always come down. And that's been taught my entire career. So it's nothing new to us, but I think that, um, and I, I actually think that, that police officers trained to the California standards of use of force are probably some of the best de-escalators uh, in, our, in our community because that's what they do for a living. They show up on things that are chaotic and they bring it down to a calm level. Sometimes the situation doesn't allow us to do that, but the, the vast majority of times it absolutely does. So we don't, I, th- I think we don't get enough credit for the de-escalation that, that police officers here in California do, but to go back to the training, um, do we need more training? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. You can never do enough training on how to de-escalate a situation. And I'm talking about from the Academy all the way through in-service training. So now that it has a name and now that it's been brought to the attention of uh, America, it's yeah, uh, public. <laughs> I was going to say something else, but I'll refrain. <laughs> it's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's got a fucking word now. So, we're, so, so now that we've yeah. been, like you said, it's an accusation. Like you don't do enough of this. You don't yeah. do enough de-escalation. Okay, well now it's got a, a, a name. So we're going to show you that we are going to do more more training on de-escalation, but just know that it's, it's been a part of our use of force training for as long as I've been around. And I know it was before that also, but, um, like I said, can, can we do more? Absolutely. I, I think that officers need to train on that weekly, monthly, whatever, but it, it should be a part of the discussion all the time because that's what keeps us from it, it helps us resolve situations better and it keeps us from getting in situations where somebody's going to get hurt, whether it's the officer or whether it's the other person. And that is always our goal. And always. you mentioned there's a lot of continuing education. So is that part de-escalation training? How many hours a, a year will your officers get? Is there such a thing? Is like yeah, it is. It's, it, I don't have the number off the top of my head. I, I would okay. say probably it's, um, it's at least twice a year. Um, that you go through that. That's one of those perishable skills training. So, yeah. so arresting control use of force and the de-escalation part of it is um, covered there. It's also covered in our firearms training, which is another perishable skill. 
Okay. That's at least uh, a couple times a year. I don't remember exactly what the post standard is for it. I know it's at least twice a year though. It might only be once, but I know we, we generally trained, um, tried to train at a higher level than what, than what post recommends or, or requires. And I know that you, your bias and my bias is obvious. You know, I look up to you and I, I respect you and, and I know, um, you only work in Santa Rosa, but how do you, can you compare the training, the budget to your department, to other budgets and other departments? There's, the numbers are pretty out of hand. I think there is, is it a million? There's a million police officers in the United States. Yeah. There's 18,000 police departments in our country. <laughs> that yeah, and Joey, most, most of those police departments are, are, um, Probably less than twenty officers. Okay. Most like ninety so, percent of them. Okay. I don't know the exact number, but I, I feel comfortable saying like ninety percent. Santa Rosa is in the would be in the top five or ten percent for size. Wow. I mean, well, think about it. Think about all your big cities, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you have your two or three really big cities in in almost every state, right? And so that's like Los Angeles. That number to the eighteen thousand departments is a pretty small number. Um, you know, Santa, Santa Rosa is bigger than the capitals of several states. Sure. You know, if you look at population, yeah. uh, there are there are several states in the United States that the capital of those cities, the largest city, is less than two hundred thousand. Okay. So, when you really look at the numbers, we're actually a pretty good sized police department with one hundred and eighty or so sworn. Um, but most of those departments are tiny. And how do you how do you keep that training consistent? Uh, how do you, how do you budget to train when you only have 10 officers? How do you even get those guys to training? Right. Yeah. You're doing it on overtime more than likely because you don't have an excess of people. So it's, it's, it's always a balance. And when you have a, a department, our size, um, making training available, uh, during a regular shift is a little bit easier than it would be for a very small department. And, and those small departments are most of America. Okay. That's a great, I didn't know that because that, with regards to that, the de-escalate, let's get back to the mental health training for a sec. Do you have, could you extrapolate what you think you'd need on that front? Because it's not just you. Everything I've, every, all the homework I did on this is that every single peace officer I've talked to, union members, politicians, they all think we need more. What number would that look like, to, specifically to your department? I know you can't have it, but if you could, you could say, I need this much money. You know, have you ever thought about that? Um, well, I mean, to be perfectly upfront, I never controlled our training budget. That just was never an assignment that I had. Okay. If you ask me about vehicles, I can tell you all about vehicle budget, but <laughs> we're not going to talk about that. Um, it's a, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot because you're talking about, I mean, ultimately to, to do a, a statewide, um, a, a training course that was adopted by the commission on police officer standards and training, California post. Um, it's a lot of money to create that course and then to send every officer in the entire state of California to like a 40 or even maybe an 80 hour course um, to get them really indoctrinated in how to deal with people who are mental health in mental health crisis. You know, most people that deal with um, professionally deal with people in mental health uh, crisis uh, those people generally have like a master's degree in right. that field in psychology. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I can tell you most of my police officers uh, do not have a master's degree in psychology. Some of them probably do, but um, most, the vast majority of, of police officers in California 
are not as highly trained as a mental health professional, yet we're the okay, ones they're calling. That is an easy segue then. Do you, there was a discussion around college degrees. I know you yourself have a college degree. Do you think a four-year degree that would be maybe a double major like in criminal justice and psychology, do you think something like that would help? If you had a, if, and I mean that as a, a criteria, like you, you need to have a college degree <clears throat> and or then maybe have something in psychology, would that be a benefit or is that, is that just a, a bar too high? I think it's a bar too high. I think, I think you're going to get, if that was a requirement, our candidate pool for people uh, qualified to do the job that we do would shrink yeah. enormously. Okay. Um, it, it's certainly not a bad thing. I wouldn't say, oh, no, no, you don't. You know, nobody needs that. Well, you know, we have people with all kinds of college degrees um, coming to us. In fact, I think that probably most of our officers who are coming in now, a lot of them have college degrees. Um, okay. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the case before. When I got hired, uh, it, the, the requirement was, and still is actually, a high school diploma. That was it. Requirement. But I can tell you, most of our people come to the table with an education. And it, and it, it spans the, the gamut on what they got their their uh, degree in. I think what more importantly, I think, like I talked about earlier, I think a some sort of a, a post uh, approved mental health course that was put together by mental health professionals and taught by mental health professionals who under who also understand law enforcement. That, that's the other key too, right? Right. Right. We just bring in some people who don't understand what we do. You need people who are experts in the field and also understand how we operate, have some experience in how we operate and collaborate and put together a course that um, really digs into how to deal with people having mental health crisis, emotional problems, things like that, depression, um, suicidal um, issues, that sort of thing, and train with scenarios, create some realistic scenarios for people to go in and resolve. We've done that training before. I've done it two or three times over um, my career. So it's it's been done. Uh, but I think it needs to be done at a higher level when, when you're dealing, you know, if, if 90% of the calls that we went to dealt with, uh, traffic collisions, okay. Would we be giving these guys tons of training in dealing with and investigating traffic collisions? Just as an example, of course we would, they'd be experts, right? Why aren't we doing that with mental health? And the answer is money. The answer is right. absolutely money. Yeah. <laughs> There's no resistance to it. Nobody's going to say, ah, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to send my officers to that. What you have to do, and, I, and I'll just touch on this real quick, especially with the smaller police departments, you have to create the training. You have to make it available regionally in a bunch of different places, like a travel and roadshow goes all over the place. And then you have to pay all the expenses for those officers to go, including reimbursing the department to pay for the overtime to fill their spot while they're gone. That's how you get people to train. If you don't do that, you're not getting people to train. You can do all the mandates that you want. It's, it's, it's the same as un, unfunded legislation. You know, when these jackasses in Sacramento create all these new laws for departments and cities and counties, oh, now you have to do this. Well, that's going to cost a lot of money. Where's the money? Oh, well, you'll figure it out. That happens all the time. You know, and there goes our, there goes, well, we'll take the money out of this budget or we'll take it out of this budget. Um, so to do it, you're right. hundred percent. It's that's what I was getting to earlier. So it is, it's our body politic that's involved in this at the highest level. 
Sure. So everyone gets up, and this is politicians across the board. And I know we're on opposite sides of the aisle here, but across the board, everyone talks about mental health being a necessity that we want to support the men in blue, men and women in blue. And and yet, (laughs) when it comes to actually approving budgets, yeah, it's just like, go fuck yourself, figure it out. And you can pull it from another budget. And then, and this is across the board too. I actually, one of the young men from Baltimore, and I don't know how long it was, maybe 15, 20 years ago, he said he was making $800 a week take home as a peace officer. And it was because he was in a small, small department and they had no money. They were underfunded, understaffed. And that was every area, dispatch, police officers, mental health, vehicles. (laughs) vehicles. <laughs> like, And he actually chimed in because this is another question I want to get to. Um, there was a, and maybe this is a good segue, is that there was a Intelligence Squared debate. And I think I've shared this with you too. Intelligence Squared is this debate in Britain, in Britain that has two or three people on one side of the aisle and two or three people on the other, and then they have a moderator and they debate it. And the, the question there was, police are too militarized today. And since you were in charge of vehicles, <laughs> you had, help, let's talk about that for a sec. Dude, and again, we can just be specific to Santa Rosa. Is, was Santa Rosa Police Department too militarized? No. Yeah. So a lot of the discussion comes from the government's 1033 program. And that's yes. a program that, that um, allowed municipalities, counties, cities, states to receive certain uh, surplus military equipment um i i know that our department didn't participate in that program for the last i don't know how many years that i was there i don't know about before i started paying attention to that um the only equipment that i saw in our department was some really super antiquated uh night vision stuff and when i saw it they were actually getting rid of it because nobody had used it for years okay um but you know the, the accusations uh, and the, the misconceptions about, you know, oh, they have a tank. Okay, that's not a fucking tank, right? A tank has treads and a big fucking gun on it, okay? Yeah. Police departments don't have tanks. We do have ARVs, armored rescue vehicles, okay? okay. Um, we have one here in this county. That is an essential tool. If you want the police department to resolve barricaded suspect um, issues, let's say somebody, whether it's hostage or no hostage, let's just say it's a barricaded subject, going to kill himself or kill somebody else, doesn't like the police, doesn't want to go to jail, whatever the story is, right? Why would you be against our officers resolving that situation close enough that they could actually communicate with the person inside a vehicle that is armored? What is wrong with that? Or what if we have a police officer who was one of the first responders and they got shot and they're laying on the ground between, you know, in the front yard. Yeah. We we don't get the the use of an armored vehicle to go in there and rescue that officer. We have to just go ahead and do it. I mean, we already have bulletproof vests, right? That's the argument is, well, we already give them bulletproof vests. They can just run in there. No, (laughs) we're going to use the, the everything to our advantage. But unfortunately the narrative out there is, Oh, they have a tank and it's not a tank. I mean, well, just Google, Google LAPD tank and literally every picture that comes up, if you click on images, is of an armored rescue vehicle, not a tank. <laughs> That's well, and, and this is, it's one, it, when anything goes viral, 
And this is another thing that I, I witnessed within the police's, the police officers that were talking. They said in 2017, anything that goes wrong with any police officer in any department in any state is on steroids. And so then everyone says, oh, the police are bad across the board. The one thing I will offer up is that there was a, a tank used in Keene, New Hampshire, that had population 224,000 people. And it actually had an armed tank to guard the pumpkin festival. And the reason for that was, again, it's, it's, a, it's an anomaly. I get it. But that was where people glom onto and say they had a tank at a pumpkin festival. So that, and that was the 1033 stuff. They're also talking about bayonets, right? Because this is all part of the false narrative. Yeah. The police officers and departments have these tanks and they, and they wear camouflage gear and they're carrying military weapons. What? What is the weapons? What what weapons did you and your officers use to be specific? Because that would be good <laughs> to talk about. Um, well, okay. So the standard the standard issue on uh, every everybody's holster, their sidearm, their what do they call it in the in the movies? Your your uh, your duty gun, I guess you call it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, your issued piece. Uh, we we used over the last, uh, I guess, like ten years. We were issued a, a, a Glock seventeen, which is a nine millimeter. Okay, just a standard regular old nine millimeter. Um, we also carry uh, like an AR fifteen in the car. It's uh, semi automatic, not fully automatic, and shotgun, twelve gauge shotgun, which we have. Um, so those those are the firearms. And we also have a 40 millimeter um, in each car. I don't know if they have every car, but almost every car, which is a 40 millimeter. It shoots a foam projectile. It's about yeah, 40 millimeters, about that big. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a foam baton round, basically. Um, it's actually a, a very effective uh, tool to help resolve situations. For what? Like what, what situation would that tool be used for? Cause I don't uh, let's, let's say you got a guy who is, uh, uh, threatening to harm himself with okay. knife. He's got a knife to his throat. I'm going to fucking kill myself. I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. Would you rather run up to that person to stop them from killing themselves and maybe hit them with a baton or try to tackle them or something, or stand about, you know, 25 feet away and shoot them with a foam baton. That's really going to stun them. You know, shoot them in the shoulder yeah. Shoot him in the thigh, somewhere that's big and meaty like that. And so it just hurts. It's like oh, yeah. it's like a really bad Charlie horse. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's that it's, makes it's sense. A tool. Um, and then we they don't they're not used that much anymore because they're they're not they were never that effective. Um, the forty millimeter is a lot better, but we we do have an additional twelve gauge shotgun in a lot of the cars that we shoot a beanbag round out of, okay. and. Those, those rounds are to keep people from doing whatever they're doing when we don't want to jump right in there. When it puts ourselves or somebody else in danger, it allows us to kind of stun the person um, with something that's, that's really just going to cause a pretty good bruise. That makes sense. One of the things I wanted to share with the audience, and you probably already know this kind of stuff, but the, the examples on use of force, um, there was a couple, NYPD actually talked about this is that use of force in the 1970s, we see no correlation to an increase in shootings. From 1971, police officers at NYPD shot and injured 221 people. By 2016, it was 72. In Chicago, between 1974 and 1978, police shot approximately 131 people. And in 2018, that was down to 43. 
SWAT, NYPD in 2019 wasn't involved in a single shooting. So a lot of the things that we're seeing on the news as lay people is that our police are militarized. They're wearing camouflage. They're carrying military weapons. They have tanks behind them (laughs) and they are abusing people. Now, I will grant that there is some awful abuse out there, which we aren't going to get into because that's, we talked about that. And there's racism within certain departments that has been proven. You guys in, in, Cal, in Sonoma County and Santa Rosa specifically, you have a 2% black population? Uh, that's probably about right for, for Santa Rosa. Yeah. And I, and Sonoma, I Sonoma County, when I looked at it, was 26% Latino. Do you know what that was in Santa Rosa? Was that? It's probably the same or higher. Probably higher. Yeah. So then a question I would have for you is, how diverse is the 180 people on your force? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't have those numbers. Okay. Um, I know, you know, we have a, we have a lot of um, officers that speak Spanish, um, whether they come from a, whether they have that background or they're, they're actually Latino themselves. I, I don't know. Um, okay. But I don't have those numbers in front of me, Joey. Okay. No, and and the reason I ask is because part of that is just with anything, any job even, I I always talk about this with my career. In the advertising business, we, we like to have viewpoint diversity within the creative team. So if you're doing a campaign for you know, Coca-Cola as an example, and, and you're trying to figure out all the different demographics they have. It's, it's usually good to have someone on your team that's gay, lesbian, black, Hispanic, white. And, and the reason for that is that viewpoint diversity allows you to think differently and to approach the situations differently. And that's the reason I ask because I know there's a good, a pretty large Latino population there. And because their culture is different than black culture, different than Filipino culture, it, it, it seems at an intellectual level that is, you know, advantageous to have people that understand the culture. And the Absolutely. Specific, yeah, specific to like de-escalation and, and, and building trust within the police department, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's cool you didn't know. I didn't... Yeah, no, well, I, so didn't. I can tell you, you know, one of the things that we've, that we've done over the years is, is recruitment at different, uh, whether it's a, an event in Roseland, um, which is, uh, you know, our probably our highest within the city, uh, Hispanic population. So, you know, we, we do, we have done things like that. We, we, we advertise, um, we'll take, come and, and, and go through the process to get hired. You know, I mean, we're not, I don't know what else we can do. I don't know what else departments in California or, or across the nation for that matter can do to, um, to get a more diverse, uh, set of officers. Um, you know, but one of the things we can do is we can do diversity training, which we do. Um, we talk about that. There's conversations about that. Um, I think, you know, in all those, all those categories that you just covered, who you wanted on your Coca-Cola advertising team, right? We, we have all those at our police department. The numbers are probably not, don't match what the population here in Sonoma County is. Um, but we do have, we welcome diversity i I like i i you know what i really loved one of the things i really loved uh when i was um doing things like planning the cinco de mayo celebrations i was on the planning committee having those guys that are bicultural having those guys that you know i I had an officer he's now a sergeant but he um he actually came here from mexico He, he crossed 
the border as a very young child and came into the United States and got a citizenship. And, you know, now he's a police sergeant. Those guys are invaluable yeah. when it comes to um, relations with with different communities, because they not only speak the language, but they also understand, you know, the underlying culture, um, which is is valuable. But we don't we don't have that asset for every single culture that we possibly encounter. Um, it just doesn't exist. Well, yeah, and you can't because that's that's another question. <laughs> One of the jokes you made with me when we were having dinner is I told you I applied at Oakland PD in <laughs> I think it was 1991. And as you know, I had a history of fighting <laughs> and a bad temper and, and a jacked up upbringing. So I, I got in way too many fights. And then as a martial artist, I enjoyed fighting. So I was, as an example, maybe one of the <laughs> worst <laughs> possible candidates. How do you screen guys like me out? <laughs> <laughs> well, you would have been easy. <laughs> I'd have been like, yeah, no fucking way. This dude ain't going to be... <laughs> Yeah, that's why I didn't apply to Santa Rosa because I knew you wouldn't let me in. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so how how do we we screen? So anytime that you want to work for the police department, you go through um, just like any job, you go through a, a set of hurdles that you have to go through. To you know, it's a process. It's an application. It's an interview. Um, you learn things on applications. You learn things during interviews that helps screen. You know, I've sat on oral boards, hundreds of oral boards sit on one, you know, the other side of the table from the candidate. And um, you can get a pretty good, pretty good idea of whether somebody might be successful or not, just from asking them a number of uh, well-suited questions. Um, but what does that look like? What is the oral board? How many, how many of you are sitting there in front of this candidate? Uh, it's for us. I can only speak to our department. It's yeah. generally three. Um, okay three people on one side. It could be a police officer, maybe a sergeant, a lieutenant. Uh, it, it could be uh, a dispatcher. Um, it depends on Is who there any psych? Is there any psych evaluation? Yeah, there? so I'll get to that in just a second. But the, okay. the, the oral board, it's a set of, of standardized questions. Everybody gets gets asked the same questions. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say I have a... Um, it's going to be a different interview for somebody who already has police experience than it would be for somebody who's what we would call entry level. So entry level would be somebody with, they've never been a cop before anywhere, right? They're coming in, they want to get a job, get sent to the Academy. So, um, you know, a good question you might ask somebody like that is, um, tell me about the time that you made an ethical decision. And then they would be open to them talking about that. Tell me about a time that you, uh, resolved conflict, because um, we want people who have done this stuff before, right? I don't, I don't want somebody who's, I don't want somebody who's never had conflict in their life. They're not going to survive being a cop, right? When you, and so you learn a lot about people just by asking them some of those questions. Um, <clears throat> if they do pass that, then they go on to the next process. And the next process is uh, a background investigation. And you're going to get a, uh, a form. It's probably electronic now. It's called a personal personal history statement. Okay? okay. And you are going to list for us, everybody that, you know, all of your family, uh, every job you've ever had, where you went to school, who your bosses were at those jobs. It's very detailed. And then the background investigator is going to go out and they're going to speak with all those people. So those people that you didn't write down, we're going to get their names 
from the people that you did write down, right? Because <laughs> right. it's, all, it's all interconnected. Of course, now yeah. social media is is a big a big thing too, right? Because if you have a Facebook page, for example, I can go on your look at your Facebook, right. see who, who all your friends are, and go, oh, maybe I'll right. go talk to that guy. Yeah. So it's, it's just it's it's a way to look into, and of course, it's it's at your consent. You give us consent to go talk to these people. When you go talk to them, you hand them a piece of paper. It says, "Hey, Joey said that I can talk to you. Here's a piece of paper." Right. Waving, waving his um, his rights to privacy or whatever. Okay. And so the background investigator will go talk to your where you worked before, um, your next door neighbors. They'll walk down through your whole neighborhood. Everybody that lives in your building if you live wow. in an apartment building, and they're going to talk to all those people. And at some point, if there's something that you're hiding. It's going to come out. It's going to come out. Okay. It's going to come out. And then uh, if something did come out, then there's a discrepancy interview where you would talk to the person about it. Um, but it's pretty comprehensive. Once you pass the background, then you would be, um, if you if it was acceptable, you would be given a, a conditional job offer. And the conditional job offer is conditional on you passing um, a psychological exam by a psychiatrist, a medical exam by a doctor and a polygraph exam by certified polygraph examiner. And if you pass all of those things, then you would be given the job offer. So it's pretty comprehensive. Has it failed to weed some people out that probably shouldn't have been doing this job? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. And we've, we've seen, we've seen examples of that. I've seen examples of that. Uh, I would say that most, most of the people in my experience in my department who were terminated um, it, it was it was for things that the public wouldn't even know about. In other words, it wasn't a public event. It wasn't a something that went viral on social media. We've had a couple examples of those here in Sonoma County, um, not necessarily with our department, but um, most of the people that I saw terminated was for darn good reason. They should have never been a cop. And and frankly, um, you know, you could see it coming. You could right. you could see it coming, and. Um, you know, I think I think there's a common misperception that that police departments never fire anybody, and that's absolutely not true. People. No, just, that was actually another discussion in that Vice interview with the seven cops. They said the same thing that there are people in power who have people in higher power that sometimes should be fired and are not, but most of the time they try to get the assholes out because it really reflects poorly on the department. And depending on leadership, right, they, that's a big deal. And again, your department is, which I'm just learning, is very large. And I think a great example of a department that's, while it's underfunded, it's still funded <laughs> to the point where you can do all of these things and you have all of these. It's functional. Yeah. functional, functional, but not optimal. And I think right. you would probably see that same scenario in every department in California. I mean, there are, there are probably some exceptions where uh, the, the level of wealth and income in a particular city <clears throat> gives that department a lot more resources. I mean, I don't know what Beverly Hills PD's budget is, but I would imagine that they probably have a little bit more extra money than, uh, say... Um, Bakersfield? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just do it. But, you know... That that said, you started out of Belmont. Was that a chill place? Because it's obviously more affluent. Yeah. Was, yeah. was that different? What, did, did they have more budget there than you guys? You know, I, I was a young cop at that time. That's I true. Didn't That's have true. any idea what, what what a budget was at that yeah. point. You know, I just showed up, did my work, and and got a paycheck. Um, I was only there for you know like 
a little under three years, but, but yeah, uh, it, a lot different, a lot different in a, in a more affluent community. You know, it's a sleepy little, little town on the peninsula and, um, nothing ever happened there. I mean, once in a while, something would happen, but I, I didn't learn very much about being a cop in that town of Belmont because you just, I mean, you you go, you'd go on, you'd work a 12 hour shift, 7 PM till 7 AM. I remember I went a whole week one time and never even got sent to a call. Wow. I mean, but it wasn't always like that, but there were times like that in Santa Rosa. That would be absolutely unheard of. Right. Completely unheard of. I, I remember hour as, shift. I remember working as a sergeant on a graveyard shift not too long ago. It was probably 2012, 2013, just before I got promoted to lieutenant. And I was working on Christmas Eve and I'm looking at the screen you know, you think well, Christmas Eve, what the, what the heck's going to happen at Christmas Eve? <laughs> this is like three o'clock in the morning, Joey, Christmas Eve, the screen, had, we had like 25 calls pending and every single officer was tied up on a call. It was, it's, it's insane. So it gets crazy like that. It's not like that every night, obviously. There are times when it's, it's pretty quiet here in town too, but um, much more than, than Belmont for sure. Yeah. So here's a couple questions that I sent you that I got from these are national questions. So if they don't, they're not applicable, just you know, tell me to fuck off. But there's one that said a recommendation across the board from independent, I guess just independent uh, politicians and counties was, is there any benefit to increase the use of special prosecutors in police misconduct investigations? It's a big question. Yeah. I mean, what what are you what are you well, considering misconduct? I mean, if you're talking about they're talking about violent, you know, violent altercations, uh, and obviously death is usually. I think that's what they're referring to in this case. Yeah, and 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 they're talking about that in, in California if it hasn't already be, been uh, instituted. Is having a, a someone a team from the attorney general's office look into officer involved fatal incidents? Yeah. Um, you know, we've we've been. I think it's pretty consistent around California. I think most uh, cities and counties have some sort of a regional protocol yeah. for let's say ha- let's say have an incident where um, God forbid one of our, one of our officers ends up um, killing someone uh, in the line of duty for what, whatever the reason is or the circumstances are. Um, we certainly never want to see that happen, but it, it it does need to be investigated by somebody who has less of a um, connection with the officer um, than, than the people that work in their own department because the, the, um, the feeling or the, the, the optics of you know, bias or lack of transparency and whatnot would certainly look different. But there's a lot of people who are making the argument that, that that's not even far enough. That's not far enough. We need somebody at a totally different level. Um, you know, the bottom line is, is these investigations are, are highly complex. I mean, yeah. we're talking about binders and bi- not little binders, binders of information. When you print it all out, the amount of investigation, the amount of questions that are asked, the amount of evidence, the amount of um, everything, binders of information and that eventually when the investigation is complete, that gets sent to the local district attorney who reads all of that, um, maybe does some more follow-up investigation and then makes a determination on whether or not the officer acted 
uh, within the law. And, and that's kind of the big, the big thing now is, are these investigations complete? Are they thorough? Are district attorneys making, you know, competent decisions on whether or not to file charges? Um, you know, bottom line is when these things happen, it's tragic. Yeah. There's, there's not an officer that I've ever worked with who wants to kill anybody. It's not even, it's not even a topic, right? I mean, right. we have to talk about it, but nobody wants to take another person's life. Why, why would anybody want to do that? Right. If you want to do that, you should not be in this line of work. Uh, you probably shouldn't. Well, you should not <laughs> be free. <laughs> you should be in, in a mental health exactly. mental institution. Yeah. Well, that's uh, a good one. You know, so, so, um, you know, it's a very, it's a very complex issue. I don't think anything's going to change. Um, you know, the bottom line is you complete, you, you conduct a complete investigation and then it goes through a legal process where somebody has to take the facts of that case and apply the law to it and decide whether or not there's there's been a law broken, whether or not uh, you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that uh, this officer did something wrong, that they broke the law, basically. Right. Now, parallel to that, there would also be an internal, potentially, the uh, if there was an allegation that the officer violated a policy or um, there was misconduct and what happened, there would be a parallel internal investigation. But those two things are, are separate because an internal investigation, the end result of that is has to do with your employment, not whether or not you get charged with a crime. Got those it. Two different things. Okay. The police department is an employer. When we think just like any employer, doesn't matter if you're a restaurant or a police department, if you have an idea that one of your, your personnel that works for you has done something wrong within their course of employment, you're going to conduct an investigation and then you're going to maybe take some action, right? Uh, yeah. Could be a written reprimand. It could be termination. Anywhere in between there is a lot of different things, depending on the severity of it, whether or not it's happened before. Um, a lot of different things come into play there. But, but just remember, those are two totally different things. One is a criminal investigation because somebody died at the hands of another. And we have to determine how that happened and why that happened and whether or not somebody is criminally liable for that. I'm not talking about civilly liable because that's a completely different thing. We can talk about um, qualified immunity here in a little bit. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Yeah, yeah, I saw that on there. Um, so I guess what the point I'm trying to make is that process is still going to take place, whether it's uh, a team from a neighboring agency uh, doing that investigation or a couple different um, agencies. You might build a team with, in our, our county, you might have two detectives from Petaluma, three or four from the sheriff's department, one from Runner Park, and they're all going to work together on the shooting that occurred within the city of Santa Rosa, one of our officers. Um, okay. Same thing if it was a Petaluma officer. Um, it's a it's a multi, multi-agency multi team that, that we can put together to kind of make that investigation a little bit uh, more independent. So giving that to somebody at a, at a state agency higher up, I, I don't know what difference that's going to make giving it to a state prosecutor as opposed to a, a local County prosecutor. I don't know if that's going to make, make a difference, but the process is the same regardless. There's no, I guess the only thing that I could glean from that would be that the local prosecutor might be friends. There might be some kind of, you know, bias there. I don't, and I'm just pontificating. Have you that met our Nobody's friends with her. <laughs> just kidding. No, I hope you don't see this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But so my understanding of internal affairs 
kind of stems from Hill Street Blues. That's about all I got. So what does that actually, what, what does that mean? What does internal affairs look like within your department? Okay. I don't understand it. So yeah, you always you always see it on the on the, the crime movies and these yeah. things, right? Everybody's well, Law and Order too. I got Law and Order. Yeah, everybody hates that too. Everybody hates the IA guys. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, that's all I understand about that IA yeah. guys because they're in suits and the cops hate them. That's on TV. That's right. <laughs> that's what yeah. takes place. It creates good TV. So we have uh, Santa Rosa Police Department has a uh, professional standards team. Actually, it's not really a team. It's a it's a sergeant and um, overseen by a lieutenant and ultimately a captain. And what the professional standards team does is they, they conduct internal affairs investigations. And when you say internal affairs investigation, that is exactly what I just described when we were talking right. about the officer involved shooting. It's an internal investigation. Could it end up being, being criminal? Absolutely. Right. Um, but that's going to be a separate process. So you have an allegation. Let's let's say uh, you have an allegation of um, I'll actually use a real example. This happened a long time ago. A, a female who had been arrested and is now out on bail or whatever comes to your department and says, I got arrested the other night. And the officer, when taking me to jail, pulled over to the side of the road and sexually assaulted me. Okay, this was long before body worn cameras, so it's it's a little bit different animal. But um, that would that would potentially create two different investigations: your internal investigation, which is going to do with, deal with your employment status, depending right. on what the result is, and then a criminal investigation because it's a criminal allegation. Okay, yeah. let's say let's say we don't have a criminal allegation. Let's just say that uh, it's. Um, Let's just say that the officer got into a uh, a vehicle collision. Okay, yeah. um, we're not supposed to crash cars. We got to figure out why you crashed the car and whether or not it's your fault. And if it is your fault, then um, there potentially could be some discipline because we can't have you out there crashing cars. All right. Uh, and let's say that that exact thing happened. Somebody backed into a mailbox or something caused damage to the car. Because we have a, a city policy that says that you have to take care of your equipment and um, not crash into stuff it would be a violation of that policy i don't remember the exact words of it but you're supposed to drive safe we have a policy that says you have to drive safe and not get in accidents right is it going to happen absolutely yeah so that that investigation would determine whether or not you were at fault there'd be a collision investigation also whether or not there's anything you could do to prevent that collision but within that internal investigation there's no crime alleged here right running into a mailbox is not a crime unless you do it on purpose um you would also be looking at past behavior. So you open up the, the officer's personnel file and you go, oh my gosh, this officer has crashed 17 cars now over the course of their 25 years, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think this probably should have been taken care of a long time ago, but you know, you're looking at somebody with like four or five crashes in the last four or five years. I'm not sure we can continue to employ this person, right? Right. So we have to determine, you know, have they had the proper training? So all, all these things are contained in this. And then the chief ultimately actually in our department the captain makes a recommendation of discipline and then ultimately the chief uh, does that and it's a whole process that's kind of also governed by the government code in the police officers bill of rights on how this investigation takes place there's some certain uh, practices that we have to abide by simply um, giving advisements um, you know it governs um, when you can do the interview and uh, who can be there, how many people can be there, that sort of thing. They're entitled to representation. 
Um, whether that's someone from your union or, or an attorney, that would depend on the severity of it. But that's that's really what an internal affairs investigation is. It's, okay. You're looking into the person's conduct on duty, figuring out if they've done something, violated policy or law, and then taking the appropriate action afterwards. And this is an, when the, because of the word internal, it actually means what it means. These are people that are employed by Santa Rosa Police Department, correct? Yeah. And I will tell you that there are small departments across California who uh, often use uh, an outside investigator. Okay. A lot, a lot of times those are retired peace officers who okay. probably work for internal affairs and have the whole process down. And rather than taking somebody, you know, you got a department of 10 people with four sergeants, who are you going to pull off the street to do this complex investigation? Right. How are you going to fill their spot? But um, the larger departments like ours, we, we have a person to do that. That's all they do. All right. That's cool. Well, you mentioned it and we talked about this before. Body cameras. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, th- again, the narrative out there is that cops turn off their body cameras before they go. And, and again, I tried to do my homework across the country. And the one thing that this is another consistency from, from the policemen that I watched through my interviews is that they all thought that the body cameras were their friend. Oh, yeah. Right? So why don't you talk about that too? Because I didn't hear the opposite. I didn't hear that they wanted to shut them off because it's it's my word against theirs. And and if I have actual video of what took place, it's to my benefit. Absolutely. It took a while to get there, though. So you think about a guy like me, who, um, let's see, it's probably, I think we trying to think what year we fully had the department equipped with the correct body worn cameras, but it was, it was like 2018, 2019, something like that. Wow. That um, recent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's go back to money. Right. So that was it before they oh. didn't have it because of money. Oh, it's expensive. There's still departments that don't have it because of money. It's incredibly expensive. Jesus. Okay. Yeah, that's just insane. And there's no funding to pay for it. But anyway. That's insane. Yeah, so that's a whole other fucking topic. But you picture a guy like me who's got, you know, 20 something years on. I've been doing this, I've been pushing a patrol car around for 20 something years, been a detective. You're you want me to do what? You want me to film myself doing all this stuff? So there was there was definitely Did some that reason. bother you at first? Oh, it bothered a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, right? You got you, I mean to think about somebody coming out someone following you around and literally recording everything you do at work. Yeah. That'd be weird. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd, I would be outed for not doing anything and I'd be fired. Well, there you go. The ad, the ad <laughs> you don't do anything too much. It's like, I know <laughs> well, that that was probably a, a, a concern for some people too, <laughs> but it didn't take, it didn't take long for, for officers to realize that this thing was their friend, that they can do their job while being recorded and that um, people or they know you have a camera, right? They're going to go, well, where's the recording? If, right. if it, if the record, if there's no recording, it didn't happen. I mean, that's the way this, that's the way our, this new generation is. Right. I mean, right. If, if they don't capture it on their iPhone, it didn't, forget. right. It didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why no, they watch no, concerts like this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that, um, that resistance over the course of probably, eh, probably a couple years turned into, uh, your, your, senior officer coming into the sergeant's office going, a body camera doesn't work. I can't go to work, you know? Oh, wow. So it completely, it completely. did 180. 
Yeah. Okay. Completely flipped. And, um, you know, there were some hurdles that we went over in the beginning because, you know, you, you have this new thing. Well, what's our policy going to be on it? And everybody's in the same boat. Like, what do we, what do we put for a policy? Like, how, what are we instructing these officers to do? Do they have it on from the moment they start their shift to the moment they end their shift? Well, of course not. Number one, the battery isn't going to last that long. Right. And number two, I mean, you got to go to the bathroom. Right. Uh, you got to, you know, maybe make a phone call on a break to a loved one parent. You're going to, we're going to record all of that. No, of course we're not. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So what, it, what is, what is our policy? You know, do you turn it on when you get dispatched? Do you turn it on? Can you turn it off? That was another right. thing. Um, right. I think it was the, the, um, I think the incident was in Sacramento where, where that was really um, a point of contention because as soon as they had done something, uh, they were talking about turn, you know, turn your camera off, turn your camera off. They probably wanted to talk about something. I have no idea, but um, we had to get into that as well. So what we ended up with, and I'm assuming the policy is still the same. We eventually got to the point where uh, you you turn your camera on when you're sent to a call, or you you are talking with somebody, or initiated contact with somebody. Um, you know, and even that, how that sounds really clear, right? Well, what if I'm... So when you get to the call, as an example, you, you, you're dispatched, you drive to the, to the actual incident. At that point, you get out of your car, hit record. That's, yeah. that's what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. So when you're constructing a policy, though, you, it just takes a while to get through some of the little stuff. So if I, if I tell you, you have to turn your camera on every time you contact somebody, does that mean that if you're working at the Sonoma County Fair on overtime and somebody comes up and asks you, you know, where the merry-go-round is, you have to turn right. your camera on. Right. So we, you kind of get through That's that. A good point. Yeah. And then um, leaving it on uh, during the entire contact. So from the beginning of the, the call to the end of the call, because what was happening initially was you'd get, you'd have your camera on, you get to the call, you get everything kind of resolved. And then you'd, you, you get um, kind of control of the whole thing, maybe a couple other backup officers there. And then the main officer would go over and kind of strategize like, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to take this guy to jail. We're going to, you know, I need you to collect some evidence, what, whatever that conversation is, they were turning it off to have that conversation because they didn't want to memorialize kind of the, their, their whole thought process. But we eventually got to a point where everybody now realizes that you, you want to memorialize that whole thought process. Okay. Because yeah. when you're talking about an incident that's going to end up, let's say, in federal court two right. years from now, okay, somebody is going to want to know because something bad happened. Somebody's going to want to know what your thought process was. Because if you don't leave that part in there, that leaves room for anybody, whether it's a defense attorney, the public, whatever, to just insert whatever they think happened during that time right. that the body work camera was off, which generally is something like, well, this that's when they plan to kill my client. Right. You know what I mean? Um, And that's certainly not the case. So it's, it's pretty ironed out now. They're on through the entire uh, contact and everybody's pretty much used to it. I can tell you from a management standpoint, um, it's a great thing to have, whether you're investigating a complaint. I mean, our sergeants now can take a, take a phone call. Somebody complained, Oh, the officer was rude to me on this traffic stop. Gave me a ticket, called me an asshole, blah, blah, blah. Okay. That's great. Let's go Bring to the it up on the computer. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Call him back. Uh, no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. No, he didn't. And, and that's really how they've become the, the, the best friend of a lot of the officers out there because 
these complaints when they get complaints because everybody loves to complain about cops. They yeah. rude. They yeah. call me names. He didn't do his job. Yeah. Whatever it is. Now we'll just go back and look at it on the body worn camera and go, yeah, that's that's not how it happened. Or that is what happened. Right. Now we need to resolve it. And right. Whether that's informally or formally or whatever it is, depending on the, the severity, it gives as a, as a manager, as a supervisor, it's an invaluable tool for dealing with that kind of stuff. Um, you know, well, and we, know. we at one point also had an auditor that we, um, that we contracted with and he would, he would, uh, come, he wasn't an employee of the department he actually worked for the, he was an attorney and worked for the city manager, but, um, he's no longer there. And I think they're trying to refill the position, but he would come in and just go through and watch body worn camera video, like randomly just to see what he could see. Um, or we would ask him, Hey, what do you think about this? You know, what do you, what do you think about right. this call? Do you, do you think, um, am I in left field here? Or are you kind of on the same opinion that this shouldn't have happened the way that it happened? Um, so that was, that was pretty valuable to have. Um, but the camera yeah, themselves, is. the camera themselves are, are, they're part of our culture now. Yeah. They're, they're, everybody expects it. I mean, yep. if you go to, if, if you, if an officer is testifying to something that they witnessed, saw happen, whether it's like a fight, whatever it is, and it goes to court and now officer testifies, there's 12 people in the box over there that want to know where the video is because that's their, that's, that's their expectation. Now that's the public's yep. expectation is yep. where's the video. Because if it wasn't on video, then how am I supposed to believe that this actually happened? Right. You know, and it's sad that we've gotten there because we went from a place where people where, where the public um, believe would believe a police officer if you get up on the stand yeah. and you testify to something. There's a, there's a, probably a little bit higher level of belief there was, and I'm not sure that exists today for for a lot of our society without the video. That's a good question. In the sense that, as someone who spent 27 years on the force and rose through the ranks from actual field officer to lieutenant, do you feel just within your city that trust in the police department itself has diminished? I think, yes, yes, I, I, I do. But I also think, um, a lot of that has to do with, um, more people's experience with media and social media as mm -hmm. opposed to their actual experience with, right. you know, a lot of people go their whole life and never have any contact with the police whatsoever. Maybe they got a ticket from right. you know, some somewhere and that, that's going to be their entire experience, right? That's, that's all they know because that's what happened, whether it was good or whether it was bad or whether it was indifferent. And um, today with, with the way the media is and social media is you, you get the opportunity to experience everyone's angst, right? And people yeah. don't, people don't tweet about that officer that just gave them a break, right? Or no. the officer that helped help find their their lost child or right. the officer who uh, bought them a cup of coffee or you know, whatever it is, right? Th those aren't the things that get tweeted out. Those experiences that people are sharing are negative experiences. And so right. um, you're with an ad background and you're smarter than I am anyway, you probably understand that whole, that whole mechanism and how that affects your thought process and gives you biases. Um, yeah. Well, that, that goes into the, the media business in general is if it bleeds, it leads. Right. Yeah. And then that even goes into the psychology of the brain. Yes. So the, the brain itself registers negative 
more so than positive. And it does that because of our evolutionary biology, right? You need to be, hey, that thing over there with those big teeth, (laughs) that can kill me. (laughs) So I'm going to remember that more than I remember someone making a compliment. And I think that that is another thing I saw across the board in my homework with all the police officers and all the debates I watched and then some of the stuff I read was that some of them actually left the force because of this. There was a couple black officers that they thought they would be, I don't know, I don't want to say excluded, but they thought maybe specifically in counties and departments that had some issues around racial issues specifically, they thought, well, I'm black. They're not going to come after me. And they did. And that was even more scary in the sense that when you do, when you don't, when you lose sight of everything you guys do, and I think that's, again, my bias is obvious, I think, but to, the idea for me was to try to figure out through this conversation, what are the, what's the reality of the defund the police motive? Because it, there isn't anybody who's attempting this at a constructive level that will say we need to defund anything. It's, and that goes to the military budget. That's another narrative that's out, that's just crazy. Like to your point, you, know, you don't have tanks. And so you don't need to defund the tanks. You don't need to defund the AR-14s. You don't need to defund your Glocks. Those are weapons you need to do your job. And, and the same thing stands true with the narrative out there that cops are turning off their cameras and cops are turning. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, we can, you, can, you can keep going. All right. Come. All right, we're back. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's another thing I wanted to address with this chat is the difference between what's going on in the media. And I understand the media because in the media, if we repeat something, and this is a, a mythical number, but seven times. When you hear something seven times, it then it becomes sequential and your brain recognizes it. And that's kind of what you're hearing around the cameras, you're hearing around the militarization of the police, the fact that you don't have enough training. <laughs> One thing that everyone agrees on is the mental health. Oh, actually, before I forget, qualified immunity. That was a question that it was bandied about. Why don't you explain what that is first and then how it's applicable to you and, and your experience? Well, uh, let me ask you this. What is your understanding of it? I don't get it. You don't get it? No. Okay. Um, first of all, so I'm not an attorney. So um, it's uh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to really dig down into the legal doctrines of it. But it, what it boils down to is a public, a public employee cannot be civilly liable for something, for a violation of uh, someone's constitutional rights, if whatever they were doing was they were acting in good faith, essentially. That's very simplistic. There's more kind of prongs to it than that. But basically, if, if I was doing my job in, you know, what would be looked at from a reasonable person in my same position, a reasonable officer, what I did during that time, let's, let's say it's totally fictitious, but I uh, get out of the car, want to call, somebody points a gun at me, I pull out my gun, we get in a gun battle, and I shoot and kill this this person. Totally fictional, okay? I'm going to get, I, the department, the city, we are going to get sued in federal court for violating the deceased person's civil rights. Okay, they're going to claim that it's a Fourth Amendment violation. Okay, that's where I got lost when I was reading this. I did. That's why I didn't. I don't. That's why I don't get it. 
how is that? How, how can you, the department, be sued for that? Oh, have you have you never seen these attorneys on TV? I have, but I don't. I mean, there's no. It's an industry. Yeah, that's what I don't get. Is you didn't violate anyone's constitutional amendment when you're in a gun oh. battle. Well, they will claim that you did, though. Absolutely, hundred okay. percent. But this is—that's where I got lost in the narrative, no, no, we, in the literature. I didn't get it. I Joey, every police, every every police department in there's not a police department in California that doesn't have at least one, if not dozens, of federal lawsuits pending against them for that exact kind of thing. For, for everything, you yeah. name it, everything. Okay. It's like the, my former chief used to say. We'd be having a discussion, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, they said they're going to file a federal lawsuit," and the chief would say, "Get in line." <laughs> okay all right because it just happens I mean, it's just part of what well, we're, we're always getting sued always cities police departments counties um but the, i guess what i what i the reason i brought it up is because that's part of the the defund abolish police yeah type of narrative is that you guys are protected by this so and i don't get that either so we are if, if personally yeah personally, if in, if if we um, are acting in good faith, if we're following standards. Let me give you an example. So uh, years ago, going way back, uh, this little company in Arizona invented this thing called a taser. Okay, and yeah. the taser uh, when it first came out, it's it's yellow. It's got darts on wires that that shoot out, and right. you can incapacitate somebody without having to beat the living crap out of them with a baton, which happens sometimes, right? I mean, right. You, you got you got a guy that's three times your size. He's on LSD, and he just wants to kill everybody within his vision. Yeah. Um, this gave us a tool to help us resolve things, right? And so, as we started using these things, we realized how incredibly important they were because we could incapacitate somebody and they essentially were uninjured for the yeah, most part right or a lot less injured than they would have been if it had gotten into a hands-on fist fight um, right. less officers getting hurt because we're, we're trying to avoid that right so we got this yeah. great tool that <clears throat> i know this is going to go south he's failing to obey my orders he wants to fight he's you know got a knife in his hand whatever it is boom i pull the trigger incapacitated run the thing for five seconds, throw the handcuffs on and the problem's resolved. Okay. That's, I'm totally simplifying it, but that's kind of in a nutshell, how the, the taser was introduced to us and, and it works. It's very effective over time because some cops are just dumb. They create uh, new case law. Okay. By doing stupid things. So at some point down the road from when we got the tasers, uh, it was decided in a federal court that, we really should not be uh, using these things on basically passive resistive people. Okay. So if they're just not going along with the program, but then there are no threat, like, no, you're going to jail. You need to get up. You need to stand up. You're going to jail. There's no fight or anything. Right. You can't, you can't use a taser to incapacitate them at that point because they're not actively fighting you. They're not actively doing anything. So, so that became kind of the new rule now. Right. So that person, that officer in that case right there was uh, granted qualified immunity because there was no case before that said it was wrong for you to, to shoot somebody who's passively resisting. Okay. But now we have that case. So now if an officer uses a taser on somebody who's passively, passively. resisting, they'll lose their qualified immunity or could lose their qualified immunity 
for that because it's already been established that you cannot do that. So that's where it weighs into, was it reasonable? So if officer today does that, you know, you got a protest or something, people are locking arms and they use a taser on somebody like that. The the court, when it gets to federal court, they're going to look at it and go, okay, we got to deal with qualified immunity. Has this ever happened before? Why, yes, it has. And we told everybody in law enforcement, don't do this anymore. So you were not acting reasonably when it did this because we've already had this go to to, to court. It's already been decided right. at a federal level that you, you guys can't do this anymore. And so that's part of those legal updates that you saw on like my training sheet. Yeah. That's all, that's just what we, we learn over time. And that's a very simplistic answer. But basically, if you do something, get sued in federal court, and it's Re- determined that it was reasonable and lawful and there's no case before you or before that that told you not to do that specific thing in other words the set of facts match and you should be aware that you can't do that anymore if that doesn't exist then qualified immunity sets in your department your city may still lose a civil lawsuit and pay out millions of dollars but the officer who did that would not be personally liable. In other words, I can go out and do my job and I don't have to fear if I do my job right, if I'm doing my job legally within the constitution and within the confines of well-established case law, playing by the rules, doing everything right. If I go out and do my job like that, I don't have to fear that in two years when this court a court case goes to federal court, I don't have to fear that I'm going to lose everything that I own, take my house, take my cars, take my life savings. Right. How do you do your job living in that fear, right? I'm officer X. Let's say I got 20 officer X, greatest officers. They do everything. They play by the book. They're smart. They understand the law. How are they going to go out and do their job knowing that if some court decides that they shouldn't have done what they did, even though they thought it was reasonable, that they stand a chance of losing everything they own. That's what the qualified immunity is there to protect. And it's not just cops. It's all government. It's anyone, anyone in government, you know, government is the only entity that can violate your civil rights. Okay. Like you own a grocery store, you can't violate people's civil rights. I mean, you can violate ADA laws and things like that, but only the government can violate your civil rights. Okay. And that's generally, most of it falls within the fourth amendment. Your, your, your right to be free from illegal, uh, unlawful searches, uh, seizures, things like that. So, and that would, that would be with an arrest or a use of force. A use of force is a seizure of a person. And so what you go to court on, what you get sued for is, is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. You violated that person's Fourth Amendment rights by shooting them, by falsely arresting them, uh, whatever it is. And so, you know, the, the argument for against qualified immunity is there's no accountability. Cops never get held accountable right. for anything. And, and that's, frankly, it's not true. Um, there's a whole process for that, um, whether it's is criminal. It similar, is it similar to the one you talked about before as far Absolutely. as you have external, internal investigations, criminal, the, the attorney general, I mean, not the attorney general, but the prosecutor? Well, you might, you might have the attorney general. You might have the, the United States Justice Department. That's exactly what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, after that was all over. And the Obama administration ordered the, uh, their uh, Department of Justice to conduct their own investigation. Right into what happened in Ferguson. Right, right. Um, so that's where I'm lost nobody, because I, I, I just didn't get, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, no, nobody remembers that report because they really never, although they publicized it, um, that that's, that's a good read. Take a couple hours and read it. 
couple hours and yeah. read it sometime, and you'll you'll find out that the United States Department of Justice under President Obama conducted a very thorough investigation into Ferguson. You'll also find that they found that the officer did absolutely nothing wrong. Okay, even yeah, though that's but, not that's that's not the narrative. Well, and, and that's actually why I wanted to have this chat with you is because I it's it's difficult to understand everything that's going on. This is a very complex topic. And in qualified immunity, just to your when I admit it, I just didn't get it. Because I don't, I still to this point, and I, I appreciate you explaining it to me, because in business, we have something called the corporate veil, which is very similar. And that was the best thing I could look at as far as analogies, is that when I started companies in the past, I would, you incorporate. And mm-hmm. once you incorporate a business, you are protected from liability exposure to your stuff. Right, personal if company, Yeah, if your company gets sued or something happens and you have to go bankrupt, you don't lose your house and your home and your, you know, your, your investments and all those things. And that's where I thought, that's why I just didn't see the fact that qualified immunity was somehow a pejorative. It just didn't, to me, if you're following the law, and, and it looks like from these examples anyway, is that you're, you're still under all of those guidelines. You're still under all of those laws, right. including the Constitution. And if you can't, if you are caught doing something, you will be arrested. And that's that's the whole point. And then, are you civilly liable? Let's just say you did, in that example, do something illegal, and you've already established through qualified immunity that you've already established through precedent that you can't do that. The stun, the tasers. Can you then lose your stuff? Sure. Yeah. So then I don't understand. It's, quali- it's qualified. It's immunity that's qualified. Yeah, exactly. By, by the fact that if you did the right thing and followed law and it was reasonable, then you, you can be immune from civil liability. It's, quali- it's not absolute immunity. There's no such Correct. thing in our world as absolute immunity. I can't just run out and do anything I want and go, ha ha, I can't sue me. It's right. qualified that we were legitimately doing our job. Police officers are out there on the street literally making decisions in split seconds. Okay. How do you do that? How do you make a decision in a split second, knowing that this one tenth of a second that I'm living through right now could literally affect whether or not I have a place to live somewhere down the road or whether or not I have any money in my bank or whether or not my marriage is going to be uh, still there, whether or not my children will be able to survive you know, if right. I don't have a job and I don't have a house and I've lost everything, how, how do you make a critical decision with that okay. hanging over your head? It's nearly impossible. I, I don't want to protect bad cops. I don't want to protect cops that are that are breaking the law. Nobody wants right. to work with those people. But in order to do our job effectively, it, it plays a big part. It does. Well, it's the same thing with companies. There's not. There's no one... I don't think anybody in the corporate world would start a company if they didn't have the corporate veil to protect them because right, it's the same thing. Why, why, would, would, why would you put yourself out there? You just go get a job. You wouldn't yeah, start a company yeah. and then get sued and lose everything. Yeah, let, let your boss take on all the liability. Just give me a paycheck. Exactly. That's all I want. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and, exactly. But, but people, people don't see it. They, they get caught up in the words immunity. Oh, they're immune. They can't ever, they can't ever. No, they can. And yeah. Cops do get fired and they do get arrested. Um, yeah. Well, dude, I this was really helpful for me, and I I think my listeners will agree. And all ten, I have eighteen now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
So yeah. And, uh, but thank you for your time and energy. And I know that, uh, a lot of these subjects are, are contentious in our culture, but I think in part, because we don't understand them. We don't understand the training you guys go through. We don't understand the day-to-day machinations of your job, the stress, the psychological stress, and the emotional and physical and all of that. So thanks for doing all that you did for 27 years. And thanks for your time and energy here. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.